question, what have you experienced that makes you say that? Or what do you see that makes you say that? Often surfaces um, motivations or thinking or ideas or assumptions that they never would have dreamed of, which can then feed into the defining. Hey everyone, welcome back to The High Five. I'm Olivia Hewitt and you are listening to episode two of season two of our show. Today we are in for quite a treat. We're gonna be joined by Fred Leichter and Dabney Haley. And our conversation on the show today is gonna be all about making meaning and how individuals and groups can be empowered to make meaning in new ways. We'll be talking about what it means to separate inference from observation and really listen deeply and how we might be able to not land on one singular meaning too soon, how we might prompt ourselves and others to look again, look deeper and ask what more we might find. Before we jump into today's episode and hear from Fred and Dabney, I wanted to give a little bit of context about something that we're going to be talking about a lot today, kind of a backbone of our conversation. We'll be talking about something called visual thinking strategies, which Dabney will explain in a much more nuanced and well-spoken way than I will. But to give the basics, visual thinking strategies, which you might hear us refer to as VTS, is a facilitated and intentionally designed conversation that helps participants explore a piece of art or a document or an idea further as a group. Visual thinking strategies has three core questions and the facilitator is instructed to not ask any other questions. The first is what's going on in this picture? So if you're looking at a piece of art as a group, you'd begin there. As participants begin to say what they notice, the facilitator will ask, what do you see that makes you say that? And that really prompts the participants to ground what they're saying and noticing and observing in evidence and real visual evidence that they can see and explain to the group. The last question is, what more can we find? Really keeping it open-ended and asking participants to explore other meanings that they might not have seen the first time, other details in the image or whatever it is that they're exploring that might not have made it into their observations in the first pass. Dabney Haley is the founder and principal of the Haley Group, which has really been influential in bringing visual thinking strategies into business and into areas where we might not have thought to bring this methodology. Fred Leichter is the executive director at The Hive at the Claremont Colleges, where he, among many things, teaches human-centered design and is also engaged in that process of synthesizing information, looking deeper still, and helping students to ask the question of what more might there be here? What might we find that we haven't seen the first time around? The two of them, Fred and Dabney, work together and have an incredible energy together, and it was such a joy to have them on the show. I'm so excited for you all to hear this conversation. So without further ado, here's Fred Leichter and Dabney Haley on making meaning and looking deeper. The first question I had for y'all is just how the two of you met. And yeah, starting with that story. I had been at Stanford and I got back and my team was like, hey, we're going to do an offsite at the Museum of Fine Arts. Are you okay with that? Will you, will you sponsor it? And we have this uh, guest uh, speaker or facilitator who's going to come help us walk through it. And I'm like, 
Yeah, sounds good to me. A day out of the office is always good for a designer, especially as a team, but I didn't really have a concept of what we were going to be doing. And uh, next thing I know, we're at the Museum of Fine Arts in front of some incredible art, like a Winslow Homer and some other paintings. And I am trying my best to remember how to say, uh, what do you see that makes you say that instead of, oh, that's really good. Why do you think that? And, and uh, suddenly it's dawned on, I'm, I'm recognizing, which you have been through, Olivia, that visual thinking strategies is really a, a, an art form that takes practice. But I was watching our team really, really get into it and really uh, connect on a level where we hadn't connected and the whole team um, looking at things. And I was hooked. And, and we started bringing Dabney in uh, where we were working. Fidelity also had an amazing art collection and we started actually trying it just for fun during the day at coffee breaks with some of the art in the hall. And then uh, we brought Dabney in for another workshop and then there was a program, um, uh, Global Leaders of Tomorrow, which was this uh, uh, sort of executive training and they were looking for recommendations on people to bring in to help the future leaders of Fidelity to be more facilitative, better listeners, better observers, better collaborators. And I'm like, oh, I have somebody for you. And um, recommended Dabney who came in and, and uh, as she has since with many large organizations, just nailed it and people were hooked at, at, at this um, executive education level as well. And, and I'm remembering the next step, which is we got to go to the D school together and teach a VTS workshop, which was amazing, which you made happen. Um, and that was incredible too. And we've been on a journey ever since collaborating with VTS. And yeah, I was, I was I, I, after my fellowship, I was eager to continue to play a role and go back out and teach pop-up classes. And so we conceived of Stanford has a couple of museums with amazing collections, the Anderson collection. And, um, I pitched uh, a workshop, a two-day workshop, where we had a Friday evening at the D School with pizza and some slides that Dabney showed to a group of students. And the D School, for people who don't know, includes grad students from the medical school, the law school, the business school, the School of Engineering, the School of Education, usually in a good mix, um, like a graduate school version of the Hive. And we then went and spent an entire day in front of this fabulous art and watched um, some of the students there really take to it. And I particularly remember there was um, a medical student. Remember he was he was he was in front of a, a, a it was a skull I think <laughs> he was VTSing this um, sculpture and and that, that sort of had holes in its head and it was really kind of amazing. I remember he, he was he was paraphrasing and he said, so the patient, oh, it's not a patient, it's a sculpture. <laughs> that was great. Yeah, that was a wonderful experience. What was the sculpture of or was everyone VTSing the sculpture? It was a, in my memory, it was many years ago, but it was a bust, but kind of um, uh, skewed and warped, like intentionally shifted away from a naturalistic representation. And we, we ran that workshop the way that we run a lot of them 
Fred and I at the Hive too, which is having as many people as possible stand up and try facilitating, and we coach them through the process. That's a really deep learning experience. You learn about how you listen, um, how you can listen better, and what, um, and also as you participate with each other as you're practicing, you you deeply understand what it means to feel heard and understood, and ask to think again, right? And um, and maybe revise your thinking for everyone. So we, everybody tried a different work of art that day in Stanford. Yeah, and the Anderson Collection was at that time uh, pretty new, and it's um, it's an amazing uh, contemporary art museum that has some really dramatic uh, architecture and beautifully lit, uh, very famous um, paintings. But when, and and so that's really cool when you get to stand in front of the the real live artwork that's a part of this important collection. Yeah, and it's so cool that both of your sort of introductions to each other and Fred, your like introduction to VTS happened in that setting too, of really like being in the MFA and standing there together and looking at this art. That's like such a visceral um, experience. I know we kind of jumped in because all three of us know what VTS is and love it, but for folks that maybe have no idea what it is, Daphne, I know you probably do this spiel all the time, but I would love if you could give us just elevator pitch of what visual thinking strategies is. And I realized like, I don't really know the answer to this question, but is it something that you developed or were taught or how did it kind of come into your life? I was taught it for sure. I'm standing on the shoulders of many giants, actually. It, it's, it came from the Museum of Modern Art in the late 80s. There was a, a wonderful director of education there named Philip Yenowin. He's actually um, a person who taught me VTS and is a partner in my consultancy. And he, he was asked, it's a good story. I won't tell the whole story. It'll take too long. But one of his donors asked him, does anybody learn anything? when they come to your educational programs. I know people love them, but does anybody learn anything? I think it was one of the Rockefellers, right? Because it's MoMA, so they have all these big names supporting them. And he, to his great credit, thought, I don't know for sure. Maybe, maybe we should find out. And that started him on a journey to think really deeply, not only about knowing things, right? Which is one thing, like having facts or knowing art history, but knowing how to look and think through art became his passion. Um, he met up with a woman named Abigail Hausen, who was a cognitive psychologist at the time. And that's a much longer story. But the two of them together realized, and I think this connects back to human-centered design, they went through a very iterative process, exploratory process, trying to figure out how can we help people at the museum they had a couple of big goals. They had more than this, but these are the ones I'll talk about relative to what we are thinking about tonight. Um, one was to help people feel like they belonged in the museum and they were empowered to make meaning. Not everyone does, right? Um, actually, a lot of people don't. They feel that they're supposed to read the label or be told what to think. Um, so, and, and they believe, no, people can make meaning and should and bring themselves into this space and feel they belong here. But they also wanted to help people grow in their thinking and meaning making at the same time. Um, and out of those two questions came VTS eventually. It took many years, as I mentioned, and a lot of research and play and iteration. Um, and I would describe it as a methodology 
a very like a beautiful armature maybe or structure for discussion about complex ambiguous materials and it's designed with both the facilitator and the participants in mind so it's carefully kind of structuring um, the experience for both parts of that dynamic between the two it has since moved into um, it moved from museums very quickly into education because Philip and Abigail were passionate about the impact VTS was having on kids and continues to have. And then it moved into healthcare. Um, and then uh, my team and I kind of pioneered its application in the business world. You should talk, Debbie, a little bit about the, uh, the class you teach at Harvard Medical School in addition. Yeah, so one of those leaps into healthcare, there, there's a, a a cohort of museum educators. I was a curator. I was kind of unusual, actually, in loving BTS and, and using it as much as I did. But anyway, a bunch of experts and, and who've been teaching BTS in museums for, you know, since the late 80s with Philip and, and after. And some of that group um, took VTS into healthcare. One of the first places it landed was at Harvard Medical School in a course called Training the Eye improving the art of physical diagnosis. And that course has been taught at, at HMS at Harvard Medical School for I think we're in, we're in our 18th year. I started teaching it about four years ago. So again, standing on the shoulders of, of giants, Judy Murray, Alexa Miller, Michelle Groey, some amazing people. Um, and that class has been really influential, I think, in healthcare. And now VTS is, is taught and practiced and I, I believe it's now more than 30 medical schools around the country. And to connect it back to human-centered design, one of the reasons it's taught there is about deep observation, right? It really helps us hone our observation skills, our language skills. It helps us navigate ambiguity better. And, and there's a correlation between um, comfort with ambiguity and uh, decreases in misdiagnosis. And I think that's a nice parallel with um, with design that you're asking people to separate inference from observation and look again and and look together um, and listen better too. Absolutely, yeah. It's so interesting to I love all the things that you just said. I wrote a few of them down, like ask to think again and think again and consider whether that was an observation or an inference. And I love what you said about being empowered to make meaning. Um, and one thing that really made me think of human-centered design was the complex and ambiguous materials um, and navigating that ambiguity. That's like something that's like so explicitly called out in human-centered design, like embracing ambiguity is like one of the core things that human-centered design kind of frames as being valuable. Um, yeah, I'm curious, Fred, like what, overlaps you saw in VTS and human-centered design? Like, did any of those things jump out at you right from the start? Or how did you see it kind of connecting to the things that you were thinking about? Yeah, well, I, I saw the connection with observation and empathy and, and taking longer to notice things and, and taking longer to come to a conclusion. And so it's super clear that that makes a difference in the medical world where you really want your doctor, even in the emergency room, to take a little longer to consider other factors, to consider the environment, to consider things that are going on before you just prescribe them out the door or into, a, or into an operating room. 
Um, but I also saw that really clearly in business and in, and in industry, which is why we brought Dabney in because we were like quick to like, we know what the customer wants, let's build it and, and spend millions of dollars developing something without really having thought through how they would use it, where they would use it, and what the underlying need was. Um, but I, I love also that you're bringing us in for this segment on defining the problem because that's actually what I then, then came to. That's a part, a lot of people are natively very good at empathy work and, and you can find them and they, and, they, and they can do good interviews and listen hard to people. I think the hardest part of the typical design process though is in making meaning out of it and extrapolating from different interviews and pulling things together. So um, that's why I love what Dabney just said about um, grow, that the underlying principle of VTS was to help people grow in their thinking and, and meaning making, like how to make meaning and to enter a museum where they might not feel like they belonged. In fact, they didn't and be able to make their own meaning. And, Kind of love that because I, I grew up going to museums and, and not wanting to read the the, the titles and, and the details and like but but feeling like I was supposed to read them like you couldn't you couldn't look at the art until you got into the end of this kind of long really small text that was like embossed on the wall <laughs> and and I actually hated that part of it but and so I love the fact that oh wow I could approach a thing and and use my own connection making skills to notice it and that's that's when I started to think more about how important that is in the design realm and and in and in the um, product definition world and that and so I, th I love that you 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 put that that this into that segment on top of it being clearly good at ob observation work seems to me it's also I, I love that too Fred I also so appreciate that you resisted museum labels I used to write them and I used to tell people, you don't have to read this. <laughs> um, there's plenty that, of, of meaning and information in the piece itself. A lot of people don't realize that, that artists manifest meaning visually. It's right there in front of you to take in. But I, I also think it, it seems to me, I'd love to hear you both talk about this, that there's a group dynamic in VTS. We've been talking very much about our internal um, how it helps us observe more and think again and, and use more precise language and trust our meeting making, but also develop it. But there's this group dynamic too that seems relevant in human-centered design where you're listening to the people you're interviewing, but you're also listening to each other on your team. And there's a kind of um, wonderful testing and experimenting that happens in a VTS discussion. It's very messy sometimes. It might not be, one might not, realize that's happening while it's happening but it is that we're one way to put it is we're sort of thudding up against other people's meaning making with our meaning making and the meaning in the piece or the stimulus or the problem that we have in front of us as designers um, and that that kind of um, cognitive richness is really productive even efficient um, so when we're bringing everyone's perspectives together in this rich space and considering all of them inclusively without landing yet. Yeah. yeah. And I think that like not landing that you just said is so important. And I think something I've noticed when you facilitated sessions or when we've facilitated sessions on our own in class is the like collaborative meaning making really prompts like a different type of listening and a different type of 
participation. So like in other classes, sometimes you'll like think of the perfect thing to say that's going to like sound impressive and sound like you understand the meaning of the reading or whatever. And then you like give this well-delivered thing and then that's it. And I think this kind of forces you to abandon that in a way because you can't just like listen in terms of what you're going to say next. You actually have to listen to what they're saying and if someone's bringing something up that you hadn't considered before maybe it's going to change what you're going to say next and I think it really does a good job of like facilitating listening and working through something together instead of being like "Hmm, interesting point here's my point like you're on this kind of journey together um which yeah is really cool and it's fun to watch everyone's collective understanding of something shift over the course of like 20-30 minutes Um, Because you're not trying to sound good or smart. You're just trying to notice new interesting things together. Yeah. Not only did I resist the labels in the museum, I resisted spending very long in front of any particular piece of art. I didn't resist it. I just couldn't do it. And I, I absolutely remember that first trip with you to the MFA, how we as a group were in front of a piece of artwork for 45 minutes. And it seemed like it was 10 and it was so exciting to keep noticing new things as a group and to be building on each other's ideas. And so that was the thing, exactly what you're saying, Olivia, that, the, that it's, it's, it's just exciting to know, to see that you're actually learning from each other and building on each other's ideas and you're noticing things you would not have noticed on your own. Yeah, and I hear the part about, absolutely, I agree. And, and I hear the part about people realizing they don't need to perform anymore or have a right answer or be co- even even be as coherent as they think they they usually think they need to be they can just sort of think out loud. <laughs> BTS is great at setting up that open flow for people. So you sort of forget yourself and get really focused on not that you're not you're still thinking your own thinking. I don't mean that, but but you're not worried about anything anymore. There's a there's a kind of um we try to create an anxiety-free zone, which I think loosens a lot of people up. It's also called psychological safety, right, in the literature. And, and that can be really important, kind of letting go of the behaviors where we're almost competing with our comments instead of exploring together. Yeah, and that, and that competition leads to withholding and filtering your own ideas. And, and not being sure that your idea is good enough, so, so holding it back. And so being released of that is, is wonderful, so, and especially for people that are maybe tend to sit in the back row or tend to be quiet in a meeting and have wonderful ideas that they haven't felt confident bringing into the, into the equation because of the power structure that is there or because of their own um, approach to being in that group setting and so it's 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 actually wonderful for like for for people that are basically introverted to be brought into that kind of a setting and be valued and and the vts coach by 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 paraphrasing well brings everybody's ideas um to a to a a recognized level yeah level playing field it is really good at that it takes time and it but it happens it's very powerful. It's also fun for the facilitator, right, Fred? Because you, we realize, and, and Olivia, you facilitated many times, your own mind is changing too. You have your own little fireworks going off in there. <laughs> like, 
wow, I wouldn't have thought of that. Or within user experience um, research, for example, I hear from a lot of professionals that they think they know what people will say because they've, they're experienced and they've talked to a lot of people and interviewed a lot of people. But that question, what have you experienced that makes you say that? Or what do you see that makes you say that? Often surfaces um, motivations or thinking or ideas or assumptions that they never would have dreamed of, which can then feed into the defining later, right? I love that. What both of you just said about creating the sense of like psychological safety. And it, to me, like the word I would almost use to describe what it feels like is you just feel very like held in the process. And like someone, you know, someone's going to reflect back to you what you said and like check and make sure it was you were trying to say the right thing. Like it's a very supported and gentle process. And I'm wondering what you guys think like allows for that psychological safety, that feeling to emerge where then, like you said, Fred, people feel safe to say things that they might not normally say, or the person who would sit in the back of the room suddenly is like exploring an idea and seeing it through. Are there intentional design choices that either of you have made as facilitators to, to get there? Or does it just sort of like naturally arise? Well, I'll take that. I'll start with that one. I'd love to hear what Fred thinks too. Um, well, there's a very um, specific technique where we, we ask the facilitators to suspend judgment so we as facilitators cannot tell someone they're great or not great. We can't add our own ideas or direct the conversation in any way. We're there to be extremely attentive and to understand and share and, and, and keep people looking and seek evidence from them. So there's a lot of rigor, but without being judged, you, you feel more and more free to share whatever you're thinking. You also implicitly have permission to change your mind based on what you're hearing from other people to revise your thinking. Um, we very often as participants end up in quite a different place that, than the one we started in. So I, I think that that stance of being deeply appreciative um, of everyone, but not telling anybody they're good or bad in any kind of language is a really important part of creating psychological safety, particularly for a leader with a team, a leader who has power. Yeah, that's super interesting. That was like one of my biggest reflections from VTS and I've shared with this with Fred and I think with you as well, but my sort of like natural feedback style is very like overflowingly positive. Like somebody will say something, I'm like, wow, amazing, incredible. Um, and I think this process really showed me that even though I have the best intentions when I'm doing that, sometimes it's more validating and grounding and supportive to just reflect back what someone said to you or add something to it or make sure that you understood and show them that you were really listening. Um, and that was just such like a huge learning, I think, for me from this was showing understanding and engagement with someone has said can be so much more of an act of love than just throwing like a value judgment on it. Um, so yeah, I think that's interesting too, as it factors into like creating a sense of safety is you're not going to be like evaluated on like great or bad or try again, but just like really showing that you're there, which is interesting. Yeah. As, as, as designers, we are trained or we teach people to say why, ask why a lot, like five times to try to get to a real need. Uh, but and, and, I, and I, 
and I still recommend that with respect. We always say ask why with respect, like a two-year-old. But I think the thing about BTS, why the, the question, what do you see that makes you say that, is a super powerful design inquisitive along those lines, especially, and, and this gets outside of just defining the need, but, but testing to make sure you really have understood a need. So you guys in your project, Olivia, do that really well, uh, even in presenting, to slow the presentation down and pull feedback out of people. Uh, where often we are, um, you know, we want to get to the end. We want to tell them everything and hear about it and get the applause. But as a facilitator, when you use that second question, well, you have a lot of control over where the conversation goes, even though you're always reflecting back what people what 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 people say, and you are always uh, being neutral or a little bit you know one click over neutral. It's always it's always positive, but 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 it's but you also can you have you can decide when you seek evidence, and I think that's what's really interesting also in in the medical space, in in, in the engineering space, and the design space, to the realize the power of of seeking evidence and when to seek evidence and when to draw people into it without threatening them with like I don't know why you think that but just uh, that, that that power of seeking evidence that then deepens your and their understanding of what they might need I like that asking for I like what you said about asking for evidence without being threatening which is sort of like if I'm confused about something I can just ask why or what made you say that without being like, wait, I don't get it. What, what's wrong? Or I don't agree with you. Something else you said, Fred, strikes me too, that we've talked about a lot, which is silence and space. Um, that learning how to be, to hold silence and be comfortable with it and model that and believe that during a quiet moment, people are still thinking, you know, the, the kind of bias toward action and answers and solutions all the time, um, or even just have an idea, have an idea, have an idea. <laughs> and, and we can learn how to wield science, silence really effectively within BTS. And, and I saw you all do that too in your presentation. It was beautiful, giving people time to think and mull, especially um, about very heart-rending topics, things that that might need, deeply deserve and need that space. It's really important. Yeah, I was um, facilitating a session with Dabney, the one at 5.30 in the morning. It was really about 6.30 <laughs> or 7.30. 5.30, um, 600 engineers. Yeah. <laughs> but, but um, and I had a group that uh, worked together normally, and they were practicing uh, facilitating with some artwork and then some pieces from their organization and one of the people said and, th and there was a point at which nobody said anything nobody had a next thing what more can we find was asked and nobody came forward with anything for an awkward amount of time actually you know and I was evaluating well, when do I chime in and throw something in but I just let it sit and then the engineer said at the end of it uh, I said that was amazing. We never in our organization have a time where there's a, not, usually there are more than one person talking over each other, like two people. And the fact that we were all sitting back and listening for a moment and waiting and mulling um, was so refreshing and energizing. I think those are the words you use. So 
it was it, it was really cool to see that you could have that impact in an organization that's acculturated to morally like just talk and, and and talk over other people that they could quickly use that and and give more space and and that's hard to do but it's also part of being a, a, a a good observer and a good designer and a good definer. It's like just like letting it sit or mulling it. And that's what's hard. It's hard in the in this college context also. You guys are doing so many things simultaneously and have so many deadlines. It's hard to slow down sometimes and get better work by slowing down. And I think that's, that's another practice of being mindful about what you're trying to do and giving yourself space to... to that. It's also a part of the synthesis thing. Um, to, to recognize that you get good ideas uh, when you rest or when you walk or when, in my case, when I take a shower, uh, that that, um, that that you just have to give yourself that space. You can't like grit your teeth and have good ideas. So. Yeah, absolutely. I love that. That made me think about, um, we had Asha and Werner on the podcast and they were talking about their class interpersonal dynamics. And something that came up a few times was silence too and space and how important silence can be in making meaning in a group over time and allowing for meaning to arise and they talked about how little they try to intervene sometimes like withholding intervention can be the best way to facilitate learning um so made me think of that too it's silence there's so much happening when there's silence it's not lack of activity um so yeah, I love that. A question that I had, which is a little bit, not a pivot, but it's just a fresh question, was I'm curious for either of you, um, I'd love to hear about a time that you thought you understood something, be it a piece of art or a problem, a challenge, and then your understanding of it shifted. Um, yeah, I know that's a big question. We can take some silence to think about it. <laughs> And then I guess the follow-up question would be like, what caused the shift? I think I have one. Coming from this work with these 600 engineers that Fred is referring to, it's interesting. I was designing um, VTS interventions for a very large group of engineers from one organization over time. And so we're, we're doing these sessions over many months. And there are about 40 engineers in each session. And at the beginning, I thought I had from talking with the, the program managers and the higher-ups at this organization, a sense of, of the, um, the engineers and how they might respond to VTS. And, um, and I was positioning it a lot at the beginning with them as meaning, meaning framing it out before they even did it as rigorous and kind of structured and rules-based. I even use the word mechanical or engineered sometimes. It's designed. Um, and I have watched them be far more vulnerable and even emotional than I anticipated. Um, and I, kind of, I think I kind of resisted that they could go there. So that's been really interesting. And it's been a slow burn for me as the introducer of this method to to uh, resist kind of pigeonholing them in the way they think, even as they're describing themselves in those terms, they're actually not enacting some of that in some of the sessions. So anyway, that's been a very interesting 
experience for me to realize as I'm teaching people to try to overcome their assumptions, <laughs> all of these assumptions about this group, which is also largely, you know, one gender male. And there are a lot of stereotypes we have about engineers, male engineers and stuff. And, but it's been very, um, good for me to test those assumptions through these experiences and to try to stay open and not assume that they need the framing that I'm giving them. Yeah, that's really interesting. It's it's really, it's like that question, like, what more can we find? Like, okay, we think they're going to be this particular way and resist these things. Like, what else might happen? Yeah, so I, it's funny it, it, when you first asked that question, I felt stumped, Olivia. And then when Dabney started talking, I realized, oh, I had a, I had this happen in a big way this morning. <laughs> like it happens all the time. So, oh so this morning, I was helping to facilitate an ideation session with uh, the lead, five colleges, seven colleges, um, some of the presidents and board of trustees about a large future campus project. Uh, and we were working with somebody to help them generate ideas uh, and to think more broadly rather than just the standard ideas they have had and really um, knock that out. And we assumed that these are, um, well, super accomplished uh, managers and leaders or they would not be college presidents or head of leaders of the boards of trustees and that they would want us to help them bring to some decisions at the end of the meeting. Right, rather than just flaring that they would want some focus and so we got to the focusing part at the end and they were like no we don't want to focus right now this has been very worthwhile and you're forcing us to vote and your voting is flawed and we need to stew it, it, it which it was they're totally right I won't, I won't mention names but but the voting was flawed and so we were actually picking the wrong set of stickies because we hadn't weeded out all the duplicates we we're doing this all online over mural which causes its own problems uh, but they were like, no, stop. The voting's flawed. Let's not make decisions at this moment. This is a big project that's too important. And so we had under, we had assumed that the ideation would need to move into focusing sooner than it needed to. And it was like really great lesson actually to learn that like stick by your guns, help, help to generate ideas and tease them out and, and then stew in the ambiguity of too many ideas which is way better than being in the situation of too, you know, too few ideas or too few ideas that you could ever get done or could afford or the town would let you do. So there are all these constraints and we had just had a, a successful session and, and needed to stop before we uh, tried to focus people too soon. Okay. I'm say, but we can find an example every day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that, that happened at, at, at 11.30 this morning. So it happens every day, probably, if you look at it. I've had others. I've had others in teaching a class where you're like, oh, I thought this would take longer, or I thought this would take less time, or I thought we would need more time, or I thought... And so you get better and better when you're teaching design. Um, I feel like I get better and better at, at um, having enough faith, and that certainly was the case with your project last fall. I mean, enough faith that... that, that, that um, this group of students is going to get there and and um stepping back and that's the thing i've actually learned i do better here than i did when i was um a design leader at fidelity i ironically didn't like i didn't we, we as leaders didn't always give enough space right and just trust that something interesting was going to come out and if it didn't wasn't interesting one then that was okay because we would have another idea the next day and with um teaching here at, at 
the college level, the talent is unbelievable. And I really am learning, I just need to give uh, some space and some parameters. I think you're naming a really important part of leadership, right? Just standing back and noticing and wondering, okay, what might we need to do when? Um, that sort of, uh, what do they call it? Being in the balcony and on the floor at the same time. That balcony view is really, really important and having the the sense to to restrain and reflect as you're choosing is a really beautiful part of um, leading. Yeah. Yeah. Restraint. Restraint. True. I'm curious what um, it's been like for you two to facilitate together, because I know you've had some sessions where you've been kind of like co-facilitating things. I would love if there's like a story that comes to mind of a time that you two were both facilitating VTS and how that went. Well, we haven't facilitated simultaneously, but we've been working together. It's been amazing. And one thing I'll say about working with you, Fred, and the Hive is that I feel there is so much trust. So whenever I'm joining or, or coming out, like we used to be able to come out there, or when we were teaching together last semester, I just knew that we would figure it out, right? That we would come together and ask a few questions and follow um, where those questions would take us. So I really appreciated that, that, that we would, we had some structure through different methods and mostly Fred, your leadership, but also just knowing we could return and roll with it was just great. The specific example I would give uh, is the advanced topics class that you were part of, Olivia, that uh, Dabney and I co-led with five amazing students working on this incredible project for Dana-Farber. Um, and so Dabney and I had met over uh, lunch at, 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 um, in, Boston, in Cambridge uh, this, uh, over the summer when um, we looked like we were able to be more in person than we, we, you know, the backs and forths of what we could do and couldn't do in the pandemic are hard to remember. But um, we talked about how we would uh, write a page, write a paper about which we, we, which this I hope is the beginning of a paper about the relationship between visual thinking strategies and human centered design and, and how they how they are so complementary. But we're like, well, we need to prove that by just teaching together. And so um, Debbie generously volunteered to play an even bigger role than I realized she was going to have the time to do because of time zones and Zoom problems and all that. And so you were part of an experiment, Olivia, where we rolled that out and hadn't been 100% sure when exactly were the times that we would bring Debbie in. But Debbie was so generous with her time, it, it felt like a natural. And then you guys... Um, played it back really well. And so it started It started with the concept that you would learn the skills and learn to facilitate, and that would help you in your listening. But then we, I think, broadened it and then watched, kind of in amazement, I referred to it earlier, in, in the midterm presentation when um, you guys used the tools to, 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 to draw in the, the client more fully to really pull out what was resonating with them. And, and it became really powerful and emotional. And, and I think that, um, that at that level, that it, and, then, and then we did some really good reflection as a group on which, which we, 
we need to get to those notes again, but uh, some really good reflection as a group. I'm um, hearing from you students how this worked for you in what parts of the process and, and what, how, what, what are the boosts that it gave. So actually, I'll turn it back to you, Olivia. What, what did you feel like uh, was the, the boost and how did it help you with that, that project that you are now continuing to work on? Yeah, I feel like it was great because VTS could be like so focused and like intense, but also so like infused into things in little tiny ways. And that was really what made it so powerful. Like when we were observing a piece of art, we were in it. Like we were all like all my whole world is this photo of Kaya. Like, this is all that I care about right now is Kaya. And I want to talk about Kaya. What do you see that makes you say it might be Kaya? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, it was so immersive, you know? Like, you really zone in and you're doing that one thing. And, like, it has this, like, intensity that it demands, I think. Um, and it was great in a in a project where we were kind of stressed and thinking about all these things and how they connect and all these complexities to put all that aside and just focus on a piece of art for like an hour was really powerful and then I think on the other hand VTS just started showing up in sneaky little ways like we'd be having a conversation and be like oh what did you hear that made you say that or like what do you like tell me more about this thing and I started noticing it like in my conversations with my friends, even if I wasn't saying the exact question, I would be like, oh, what, what did you notice that made you say that this person thought this thing? Because like I, what, you know, um, and seeing it show up in these kind of unexpected ways, I think reinforced the importance of it too. So I think the fact that we could engage with it really intensely, or it could come up more gently in our processes throughout the semester, um, was yeah really important um and it just became like shared language too you know like it was something we all understood and kind of a posture that we could all take at any moment was to slow down and and think about something a little longer you know if we heard one of us being like interesting like what do you see that makes you say that then we're all familiar with that mindset you know and we can kind of tap in so I think it also does create that shared experience that is almost like a muscle you can return to um yeah a posture of learning and understanding that you've shared as a team yeah that's beautiful and and we saw that too in the at the end of the course and we if i'm remembering right we sort of vts the experience of the course <laughs> pulled yeah. back and used your reflections and used the methodology to think more deeply about it and i i remember all of you talking about how much you trusted one another and it, by the end of the semester. And, and I think that circles back to this idea of psychological safety, which is not that we all agree or that we're all even completely comfortable all the time, but that we have a space in which we trust each other to say what we're, we're thinking and raise new ideas. And we embrace some of that tension. And I observed you all enacting some of that now and again. It was really, really satisfying because I do think that practice over time with this method can accomplish so much in terms of the cognitive and behavioral and emotional muscles that you're describing. So it's very gratifying. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And it makes me think about like in the vein of thinking about human centered design and visual thinking strategies as going hand in hand, like 
what are design practices that we can keep engaging in that lend themselves well to following up and asking for evidence like transcribing or taking photos or whatever it is so that you can ground yourself in those like concrete details. It's interesting. Um, yeah, but I love that. Yeah, I think photos are, 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 one, are one great way, like to take a picture of a setting and then bring it back and keep looking at it and noticing things and, and treat and then, you know, treating it like a thing that you then can VTS um, and seeing what more you can mm-hmm. notice in the background that you don't see that you look through, you look sort of funnel when you're there at the thing that's right in front of you and then and then broadening that and you probably can do that with a video as well of a setting. You can do it on site too, you know. I mean, in the training the eye course at, at Harvard Medical School before COVID, we visited patients in rooms and hospitals and used VTS with the patients and their environments. Or you can apply VTS to any kind of space or moving experience. I used to, when I worked at the Rose at Brandeis, the museum is small and it's this lovely little mid-century modern jewel and it's up a hill so I would make the museum studies class, go to the bottom of the hill and walk up with me. And I would do VTS all the way until we went up the stairs and through the doors and into this building that ended up in front of a work of art. And so we just VTS the way that the museum invites your your physical self to enter and the, the shifts in thinking and awareness of self and what you're seeing as you go in, because it's, it's um, you know, it's kind of a ritual walking in a museum. It's like a temple, right? <laughs> So anyway, there's lots of ways to use it in the in the moment too, or in the space that you're researching. Um, you couldn't do that with Dana Farber because you were on the West Coast. You did amazingly. We, we at Fidelity, we used to do a similar thing and go visit other organizations and and not start in the conference room to try to understand them, but start outside of their building or their corporate headquarters and see what the reception was like and what did you notice about the kind of artwork that was or was not on the walls or the tone or the messaging or the signs. And you can do that with a restaurant, you can do that with all kinds of places to try to figure out what's what's going on inside by starting outside and sort of approaching it slowly. Yeah. It's making me think of you going to Trader Joe's for the project too. Totally. <laughs> Big yeah. Trader Joe's project. Yeah. <laughs> no, but I love that um, idea of and I mean, it's kind of symbolic, right? Like you start outside something and then you kind of walk into it together and notice what it's like to enter into a space kind of mirrors the process of entering into like an artwork and noticing what it's like through that whole process. I'm curious what that was like for both of you to do this sort of observing in like a, in a way where you were walking around and kind of like active as opposed to in a very focused, like seated session. Yeah, I think as the facilitator, First of all, you need to feel very comfortable with the methodology when you start doing time-based stuff or spatial stuff um, and be ready to pause and help when people want to, but also help move them along if the intent is to traverse. So there's a few adjustments, but um, I, don't know, I, I find it invigorating. I don't think it's that different. You know, I think at the core of VTS are so many things that we've been talking about, Olivia, just a stance of openness and suspending your judgment and listening deeply and paraphrasing and link. We haven't talked about other things within paraphrasing, like linking and framing and conditional language, but just holding that stance, you can do a lot. <laughs> Move around, you can look at three or four things in a row. 
you can there the anyway there's a, there's a lot of uh it, it's a it's a very uh elegant method i i find that can be flexibly applied and we're not talking too much about this but we also apply it a lot outside of art right you can look at those interviews at at some uh quotes and things that seem to be full of paradoxes like what is going on in this quote <laughs> yeah. um and, and it, you can look at a journey map, you can look at a prototype, you can look at data, you can look at competitors' materials, you can do all sorts of things with it. Uh, yeah. Um, we've been asking our guests, um, and if we need to think on this for a second, that's okay too, but our question is always like, if listeners are really interested in this and want to learn more, um, do you have any resources that you would suggest they check out, whether it be uh, VTS specific or about kind of problem definition in different ways, um, synthesis. If someone's loving this and wanting to keep diving in, where could they go next as an interesting next step? Well, I guess I could speak to VTS. There are lots of places to go, but um, uh, the Haley Group website is a good place to, to start. And also, I, I recently co-wrote... Um, an essay on Medium with the learning and development uh, executive from IDEO. We talked about how VTS has worked at IDEO. So that might be a good marriage of the human-centered design and VTS interests. But to learn more about what VTS is, you could start at Haley Group and you'll hopefully find your way to lots of other places. That's awesome. I would love to read that um, essay as well. We can link it for folks in the show notes. Yeah, and I would say um, you probably your listeners are coming to this through the Hive website, but if they haven't, we have um, resources there and, and a lot about our classes. I would say that um, Debney just mentioned IDEO. IDEO is, is really generous about publishing um, a lot of their design methods online for free and in a pretty um, beautifully designed format. Um, and then there's a book called 101 Design Techniques that we've used in our class. Um, there's a book called The More Beautiful Question, which is about asking questions. Um, so there's a bunch of resources that I, uh, that I could uh, rattle off. But um, I and then um, for students, uh, they should consider taking a human-centered design class, whether it be the one that the Hive offers or one at, at um, wherever they are, students or, or or former students who are future students. Um, you could, there's many forms of a human-centered design class and it, it really amounts to working on a design project with a group of people. Yeah, that's awesome. Those are great resources. Thank you both. I love that. There are a bunch of different places someone can go and explore. And hopefully people are listening from the Claremont Colleges and yeah, can come take a class and do VTS and just jump in in a really hands-on way. That's right. awesome. Thank you both so much for joining me for this conversation. I loved that. That was awesome. And it was really fun to go through all the different twists and turns and bounce off each other and land in really interesting places. I really appreciate both of you joining me. It's a delight. I appreciate both of you too. This was really, really enjoyable and I learned from it. Thank you for joining us for this episode of The Hive Five, where we were joined by Fred Leichter and Dabney Haley. 
We would love to hear your thoughts on the episode, which you can let us know through our Instagram at hive underscore five C. And if you're interested in learning more about Dabney or Fred's work or in learning more about the hive, you can check out the links in the show notes. Thank you so much for joining us, and we hope you'll join us again soon for our next conversation on the Hive Five.